Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. So we're going to talk about chariot, the nature of chariot, chariot or chariot. So Spirit, do you want to introduce chariot? Yeah. Well, it was my idea, I got to confess. So I looked it up on the ancient encyclopedia, which I thought was a little more classy than mere Wikipedia, though I looked it up in both places. It says here, the chariot was a light vehicle, usually on two wheels, drawn by one or more horses, often carrying two standing persons, a driver and a fighter. So the fighter would have sometimes bow and arrow, sometimes javelins. And the chariot was the supreme military weapon in Eurasia, roughly from 1700 BCE, to 500 BCE. The first reference to charioteers in the civilized world comes from Syria around 1800 BCE. Over the course of the next four centuries, chariots advanced into civilization. Hittites established their first kingdom with the help of chariots circa 1700 BCE and thereafter used them intensely Hurrians, Hurrians, never heard of Hurrians, H-U-R-R-I-A-N-S, from somewhere near the Caucasus, penetrated in the Middle East and carved a kingdom for themselves that was to play an important role in that region around 1500 BCE. Egypt was invaded by charioteers called the Hyksos around 1650 BCE, who established their own dynasties. In China, the first dynasty appeared, the Shang, starting 1600 BCE, with an aristocracy of charioteers. And I guess I wanted to say, one of the things that's kind of fascinating about chariots is apparently the chariot was invented before people rode on horseback. Really? So so this is, there's a little section, a little paragraph here in the good old ancient encyclopedia that goes into this uh, great uh, historical mystery. There is no clear explanation as to why humans invented the chariot first before riding the horse directly. Uh, A chariot was obviously more expensive than the horse alone, and chariots could not enter or properly maneuver in landscapes such as hills, marshes, forests. We know people tried mounting horses very early since we have found drawings depicting that. But these yeah. seem rare experiments that did not work. The most common I, scholarly suggestion is that horses at that time were weaker than at present, unsuitable for supporting a person. And only after a very long period of selective breeding did a stronger horse come into being. Horses started consistently to be mounted roughly a millennium and a half after the chariot was invented. And somewhere I read that basically chariots were destroyed by cavalry. Uh, Chariots were superseded by cavalry. So they died out 
500 BCE, except to use in ceremonial and sports purposes, where there's uh, chariot races, you know, in the Roman Empire up until, I think, uh, 600 CE, they're still riding around on chariots for fun. It, it would be phenomenally, for me, unthinkable that men, men, women, riding bareback, you know, from the beginning of time, and it was only in this sort of recent barbarous era that we sort of forgot the nature of being with horse. I thought it was mm. interesting about the size of horses, but mm. I know that, you know, you have Mongolian ponies that, are, that aren't very big, but they're very strong. Mm. And I can't imagine that riding horses hasn't been, inex, you know, intimate to our experience. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say one of the, you know, speeches I was giving myself preparing for this is, you know, I learned this on the Internet and one should never trust anything you learn on the Internet, particularly stuff about ancient civilization where there's all sorts of um, incentive yeah. for white supremacists and other yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Of evil people to people for sure. Yeah. Inflict well, the, your mind with the, error. It was, there was the mounted horse on this tree saddle is what I think they used to call it. It was the emergence of the stirrup, which mm. um, Lynn White, makes a big deal of in terms of the emergence of feudalism because the stirrup allows you to maneuver in the saddle mm. but that's kind of disputed you can maneuver also on a hard saddle at any rate um are you saying stirrups were used for chariots or or this is more for riding horses right yeah riding horses yeah yeah, yeah. but the chariot also in in eurasia um in the areas of its origination and particularly in the Middle East was an incredibly effective because it's fairly flat. Do you know what I mean? Like it's oh, yeah. maneuverable. But then once you get into Europe, it's, it's, you know, you really need roads for chariots to be effective. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah. And that's where you start losing the use of the chariot, I think, in, in warfare, particularly as, you know, the center of things moves to Europe or whatever, you know. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, I was Khan, thinking was in, trying... in chariots, Genghis Khan, he was he, you know, was on they were on horses, horseback. I know I, I found this copy. One of the things I was thinking about myself, I decided what I am is a thrift shop scholar. Yeah. Because I'm constantly going to thrift shops and just browsing the books. And yeah, so at Family of Woodstock, which has these free books, it's kind of a community drop-in center for people that are at the very bottom of society, including me. And, um, and I found uh, The Travels of Marco Polo, the book. And, uh, nice, and a bridged version <laughs> in English. Yeah. And I'm reading it, can't find chariots, you know, there's like Genghis Khan, there's ancient China, there doesn't seem to be a single chariot in all of uh, Marco Polo. Oh, yeah, that's a good observation. Yeah. But there were some carts, though. Yeah, I mean, it says somewhere in this ancient encyclopedia that horses were kind of late. But here's, this is, no, this is the famous Wikipedia, the domestication of the horse was an important step towards civilization. 
But horses were kind of late to be domesticated. Before that were donkeys and other creatures. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about the person that looked out at a bunch of horses running across a plain and thought, this power could be harnessed, literally, for the human being. Like, what a strange thought. <laughs> Let alone, at what point do you think that we tamed ourselves? Yeah, I think maybe that's for the future, yeah. if ever. <clears throat> yeah, the one thing I would point out, which yeah. I think wanna, which we want to point out early, is you know that the chariot is a form of of class oppression mm. and of class suppression and um, mm. because the chariot the man mounted in a chariot with horses mm. has a perspective that's very different if you're not on a chariot if you're like walking around you know mm. yeah <clears throat> just as a matter of that we understand what the chariot really is. And when it first appeared, it must have been like a thunderclap, you know, for here's warfare has been going on for centuries, and suddenly here are these, I suppose, old guys rushing around at incredible speed, shooting arrows at you. Elevate. It's like a yeah. terrifying new technology deadly okay. new technology kind of like drones maybe today you know yeah which the yeah which the egyptians confronted that was the egyptians and the egyptians had fighting. their own chariots according to these lectures i'm listening to about ancient egyptian history but yeah. um, i don't know the hyksos who so, are possibly uh, the jews <laughs> uh-huh are uh, very unassailable in their, uh, they've got maybe souped up chariots, I don't know. I know um, Plato was uh, very interested in the chariot, and it is the uh, metaphor for the, the, uh, the human soul that he develops in the Phaedrus. That yeah, the, I saw that. Right, the, the, the charioteer is, uh, represents um, uh, intellect, higher reason, the, the chariot itself is the uh, symbolic of the uh, the soul. I thought I had forgotten that. Yeah, I think it was also picked up, um, you know, in a slightly modified version by Gurdjieff. Oh, yeah? Yeah, the, the analogy of the carriage in which the, the driver is the mind and the horses are emotions and the carriage is our body. Mm-hmm. And also the passengers are potentiality that we have within us. Mm-hmm. Within Gurdjieff's perspective, with most of us, the horses are improperly connected to the carriage. Mm-hmm. And a wheel is missing from the carriage itself or is, you know, cobbled together. And the, the driver is drunk. <laughs> sleeping. Sam, can you tell me a little about Gurdjieff? I, I, I don't know anything. Oh, I, I don't know. He was a Transcaucasian from Armenia. Was it Armenia, I guess? And uh, 
you know, he um, was a mysterious cat. <laughs> active, uh, active in the last century, principally in St. Petersburg. He sort of emerged okay. and then left the world in Paris and wrote a lot of books. You know, he was a prolific writer. He died around what, in 1945, like that? No, uh, he was 47, something like that. But you don't know what year he died. I think it was 47. Oh, I see. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Beelzebub's tales to his grandson is his magnum opus. You know, this three-volume uh, exegesis on what Beelzebub, who's an alien, has to relate to his grandson of these foundlings called uh he has a name i think sort of what would be our equivalent of earthlings and he mm. he finds them to be very curious creatures and uh well, what other associations have you guys discovered well i think you know one thing that i've noticed is what uh is that there are two ways of saying chariot or you say chariot hmm. and that the chariot sounds like like a, a faint ot. <laughs> and the ch- chariot sounds like a cherry, you know, like a first ot. <laughs> but also the word cherry, C H A R R Y or C H C H A R Y, um, which means to be faint, to be cherry. Uh, to be uh, hesitant or slow to to grant is in its old English cognate full of sorrow. Cherry is to be full of sorrow, huh. to be full of care, to be a person laden with sorrow. And I would posit that the chariot is full of sorrow. Hmm. Hmm. You know. The chariot is is the incarnation of the car. It has the same cognate, chariot and car. Yeah. And having a car is a hassle. <laughs> having a car is a sort of is full of of care. Mm. It also changes your perspective. When you're in a car, you mm. look at things around you in a different way, which I feel is a is a, uh, a perspective of being oppressor and kind of like there's a you're sort of dominating a landscape that's statistically proven (laughs) i'm interested in this chariot as being full of sorrow i think that's very thoughtful and one thing that i remembered um is that emily dickinson's very famous poem because i could not stop for death was um titled the chariot in its first publication in hmm. 1890, by the hmm. editors, who also um, uh, manipulated her punctuation, removing the dashes, and eliminated the fourth stanza. Hmm. But I wonder, Sam, if um, the you assist- want to read it? Sure, I but have. The, it. the one thing I would say is, but she didn't describe that title. No, that was uh, posthumous, posthumously ascribed yeah. the poem by the um, the first editor of the 1890 edition that was published. Um, when did she die? Maybe in the 18, 1880s? 
Does yeah, that, not right? long before that edition. I don't know. Maybe within five years, I think. Five. Yeah. Um, do you want to hear the uh, the poem as it appeared in 1890 without the famous fourth stanza? The fourth stanza again was um, eliminated. Was yeah. Um, let's ex- hear that version. And also, I think we need as we're listening to separate chariot from this poem which was a description <laughs> that was made retrospectively Correct. okay because i could not stop for death he kindly stopped for me the carriage held but just ourselves and immortality we slowly drove he knew no haste and i had put away my labor and my leisure too for his civility. Mm. We passed the school where children played, their lessons scarcely done. We passed the fields of grazing grain, we passed the setting sun. We paused before a house that seemed a swelling of the ground. The roof was scarcely visible, the cornice but a mound. Since then, tis centuries, but each feels shorter than the day. I first surmised the horses' heads were toward eternity. Mm. That's that, the 1890 version, which is quite different. Do you want to hear the um, her unedited version? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Hold on. I thought that was superb. Yeah, beautiful. So here's number 479, um, as Emily Dickinson wrote it. Because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. The carriage held but just ourselves and immortality. We slowly drove, he knew no haste, and I had put away my le- labor and my leisure too for his civility. We passed the school where children strove at recess in the ring. We passed the fields of gazing grain, we passed the setting sun. Or rather, he passed us. The dews drew quivering and chill. For only gossamer my gown, my tippet only tall. We passed before a house that seemed the swelling of the ground. The roof was scarcely visible, the cornice in the ground. Since then tis centuries, and yet feel shorter than the day. I first surmised the horses' heads were toward eternity. Huh. And then he made he made some rhymes that weren't there, the editor. Yes. So- the second version was Emily Dickinson's original version based upon what was discovered by her sister, Lavina, shortly yeah. after her death. The first version was the first printed version of the poem, which appeared um, in 1890 and was um, fairly heavily redacted in terms of punctuation, the elimination of an entire stanza. And as Sparrow pointed out, the third stanza is essentially rewritten, or at least Two lines of it, two lines of the quatrain are rewritten by the editor. Because I noticed her rhymes are much more regular. They're like, in the first version, it rhymes much more directly than Emily Dickinson liked to rhyme. She liked these slant rhymes. Absolutely. So they they made them into kind of more like conventional 19th century rhymes. Absolutely. It's interesting that they selected the uh, the title of the chariot. Yeah, you know, that that word does not appear in the poem. It's it's the carriage, the carriage held, but just ourselves and immortality. 
But the carriage doesn't sound like death. (laughs) (laughs) One thing that interests me is that what you were saying about the chariot is is being an occasion in which you could have two people. Um, You have somebody who's driving the carriage and the other that's, like you Mm. said, shooting arrows or something. And I was kind of interested in what kind of conversation the two could engage in. Like it's yeah. an opportunity to get together with another person. Yeah, you're pretty close together in a chariot. It's it's not a big platform that you're sharing. You're standing. I think a chariot, typically, as far as I know, there's not seats. So yeah. you're standing the whole time, and you're kind of in this kind of tiny space together. So It's an opportunity for real closeness and also that you're kind of dancing together because you're probably practicing all the time like you do when you're a dancer. Mm-hmm. You know, you're doing different moves, learning each other's rhythms. And you're also joggling up and down, you know, because, you know, there's not much uh, shocks on a suspension on a chariot, I get the feeling. So you're just jiggling around just by being in a chariot together i mean of course the bhagavad gita is is that conversation it's a conversation between the charioteer and the passenger Uh, arjuna is going to war with his relatives the pandavas and his charioteer he thinks his charioteer is just some guy like a cab driver and gradually realizes that the charioteer is the uh, lord of the universe, is God. Yes. So that's part of the plot of of that uh, conversation. I mean, it's a pretty one-way conversation, but, you know, I think Arjuna asks questions like, oh, what is the right way to meditate, oh, Lord Krishna? And Krishna says, then Krishna speaks chapter six, you know. Is there a rhythm to the um, Gita um, that's inspired by the rhythm of the chariot? I mean, what I understand from what I read about it lately is that it's like it's more like a kind of a movie where uh, Arjuna drives out, rides out in the middle of this battlefield. There's two sides of the two armies are are parallel or are opposite preparing to fight arjuna as i picture it rides out right in the middle and then time stops everything just freezes like you know the way they can do that in a movie everything everybody just both armies stand frozen arjuna decides i can't do it i'm dropping out of society i don't want to kill my relatives i don't like war i'm just quitting you know i'm gonna like go work in a little coffee shop somewhere in Delhi and just chill out. And um, and then, so all this takes place without movement, in a kind of in stillness. In the chariot. In the chariot. In the chariot, yeah. yeah. Because, because the chariot the- is, yeah. as I have learned from some website called Lalu's Lab, L-A-L-L-O-U-S, She says, uh, here's the symbolism. The chariot represents the physical body. The five horses, there's five horses, because they had big chariots. You know, Arjuna is a major general. The five horses represent what? The five senses. 
sight, hearing, taste, touch, smell. The reins symbolize the mind. Our mind is connected to the senses and can drive our senses. The charioteer represents the intellect. The passenger represents the soul. And according to Laolu, Laolus, with this symbolism, our purpose in life as human beings is to use our mind and intellect to take the chariot to the destination. The destination is understanding life and attaining enlightenment. One image that I had that it seemed to me that some guru or other said to me, uh, not to me, said in some talk, is that you have these horses, you want the horses to take you somewhere, you have the five senses, you can't kill the horses. The horses, you kill the horses, they won't take you anywhere. You can't let the horses run in five directions. If you let them run in five directions, the chariot will go nowhere. You got to do something in between the two. You got to like, as they say in my meditation group, channelize. You got to have the senses working, but working for you using your reins, pulling back the reins, just exactly the way you pull back a horse. Horse wants to do anything, wants to eat, wants to copulate, just like us. So you got to like use the reins, pull them back and direct them towards the goal, you know. So that's, you know, that's yoga. But in a circumstance in which there is no goal. In and this particular part case. Of the drag of the chariot, you know, is there's <laughs> always some place to go. Mm. You know, the tragedy, not the tragedy, but, you know, when, when human beings got connected to the wheel, you know, we're going places, but there's really no place to go. Yeah. Well, I mean, what happens in the Bhagavad Gita is, uh, you know, they have this mystical conversation and then the big climax is uh, Krishna, the charioteer, reveals his divine uh, universal body to to Arjuna. And Arjuna looks in the mouth of Krishna and sees all the stars, the universes, the galaxies, all... uh, all inside Krishna. And then eventually he does decide, yes, I'm going to go to war. I'm going to kill my relatives. I'm going to take action. I'm going to do my dharma, do my duty in this universe. But he didn't have to go anywhere. (laughs) He was just sitting there in the car, you know, smoking a cigarette. (laughs) Well, but everything was wrong. Because my wife and I, when we first were, we spent six months traveling the world together traveling really Britain together. And one of our rituals is we would uh, read the Bhagavad, no, we'd read the Mahabharata in French every day. It is the epic, Indian epic. The Bhagavad Gita is the kind of central centerpiece of. So, so you read the beginning of the Mahabharata, you don't go very far. And it's like the Dharma is completely ruined. You know, wives are not listening to husbands. Uh, you know, children aren't listening to adults. Uh, you know, everything is wrong, you know? Yeah. Everything's backwards. It's but backwards. The chariot is, is not, is about like keeping, is about walking the line. I, I'd like to go to the, to the tarot card. Oh, yeah. What's yeah. that? Tarot. I'd like to, yeah, this is a description from uh, Wait, from the um, W-A-I-T-E was a prominent 
tarot card scholar and also did the common deck, you know, which everybody associates with tarot, the really Hmm. pretty one. And this is what he writes. The chariot tarot card depicts a figure sitting inside a vehicle that is being driven by two black and white sphinxes. The whole card has a bit of a celestial influence. The figure sits underneath a blue canopy adorned with white stars. On his shoulders, he carries the sign of the crescent moon, representing the spiritual influence under which he is guided. Mm. On his head sits a crown, meaning that he is enlightened and that his will is pure. Emblazoned Mm. on his chest is a square denoting the element of earth, of the material world, which grounds him and his actions. Wow. That's a great idea to have a a chariot uh, pulled by two sphinxes. I never heard of that. They're they're black and white, which obviously relates to duality. Yeah. And it's very similar to Plato's um, description of the black and white horses. Yeah. You know, like uh, Rilke's black and white angels. You know, he had the opportunity to be psychoanalyzed by Freud. And he's and he said, no, no, if I purge my dark angels, I fear my good angels may flee. <laughs> That's a great answer. When you're doing a tarot card reading, so what does it mean if you draw the chariot card? How, how is that interpreted? What, what, what's the significance? I don't know much about tarot. Well, it has to do with staying on track. It has to do with staying on the road of controlling polarities of energy. I see. Mm. You know, it's necessarily, it seems to me, it's a, it's a male figure. It's a very male kind of thing. For example, one of the ideas of being a warrior is somebody who guards the boundaries. Hmm. So the, the chariot card is very much has to do with repetitive labor to a certain extent Mm. and of holding together the circle of Mm. life i mean i think it's interesting for us we are three men having this conversation and this modern world and um we're discussing the chariot which i think sam is right is is a pretty archetypally male and warrior uh, symbol, mm-hmm. though archaic, but kind of, I think it remains as a kind of archetype in various images of what is masculinity. And I think maybe all three of us are kind of struggling with our own relationship to masculinity. I mean, in talking about chariots, you know, it's hard to talk about a chariot without thinking well, did I ever ride a motorcycle? Because I was thinking on my way walking here, well, I think the chariot today would not be a car, but would be a motorcycle because it's exposed, like a chariot doesn't have a roof typically. So it's, and it's fast and kind of mobile. So I would say it's a little closer to a motorcycle, which really is still, come to think of it, a 
masculine expression of identity. And have I ever, I think I was once on a motorcycle, maybe one and a half times. What do I feel about, you know, being a man? Am I even a man? <laughs> what do I think about these men on their goddamn chariots? I just feel like I, hell with I them. think it's a system of, I think it's oppressive. Yeah. They're dangerous, you know, these men in their chariots. I agree. I, for, for research, for our time together, I went and watched the Ben-Hur chariot <laughs> sequence with Charlton Heston. Yeah, my friend David was just explaining it to me. And as I recall, that, that had to do with some pubescent <laughs> aspects of my own masculinity mm. was supercharged or was within the crucible of scenes like that, of collective youth violence experience, experience of violence, Ben-Hur, you know, that was like, oh, we're going to watch Ben-Hur mm. and, and feeling very identified with the horror. The horror? Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah. I, feel, I feel we're going to cut, we're going to get to what I feel. <laughs> I feel that those that sequence that I observed as a young person watching Ben-Hur with a kind of stylized violence mm. definitely had an impact on me. It's a chariot race, right? It's not really a war. It's just it's two chariots trying to win the race. I mean, it's a kind of a pacifistic uh, battle. Right. Well, you've got whips involved. <laughs> and you've got the, the the more sinister, the Charlton Heston's agonist or whatever, is um, has these wheels that shred Charlton Heston's wheels. And yeah. so that happens repeatedly. And somehow Charlton Heston survives these repeated attacks, dirty tricks by his uh, adversary. Right, by his more class... He's part of the royal family. He's part of, mm. the, I think it's during the reign of Nero. Ben-Hur takes oh. place during the reign of Nero. Yeah. I think mm. it has something to do with Christian chalice or robe worship or something like that. I think there's a Christian jag to it, isn't there? Huh. A Christian jag to the film? Ben-Hur? Ben-Hur, yeah. I'd, I've never seen it, but I am aware of the, the chariot race. Um I, I was thinking about my first encounter with Chariot. It was it was through a film as well. It was the 1981 British historical drama Chariots of Fire. Oh which, yeah. Which I was too young. I was deemed too young to watch. I was four years old at the time. Hmm. And I remember wanting to accompany my parents and being told, "No, this is an adult film," and having to stay with the grandparent. And sulking a bit. I have a distinct recollection. And that came up immediately when I heard this was the topic. And it was the first time I had remembered that. Was there a song? Yeah, very famous soundtrack. Is it about an English Jewish man, an English Jew who runs in the Olympics? Oh. Maybe in the 19... 1920. 
I don't know. I have no idea, even though I'm a Jew. I don't know if you're asking me as a Jew. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, I think it was the 1912 the Olympics. It was just before the First World War. It was going to shatter yeah, that whole scene, wasn't it? Or was it after? I forget. Is it before or after? Did you ever see it, Andrew? 1920. Um, I saw a little bit of it. I saw a little bit of it maybe about 15 years ago. But I did look into the origin of the chariots of fire, and that's from the uh, Hebrew Bible. That's from the um, Book of Prophets. Um, Elijah, in the company of uh, Elisha, approaches the river Jordan in a chariot of fire. What well, does that's that mean? often picked up uh, UFO-wise. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's right. Beelzebub's ship. Are you yeah. serious? And I found yeah. myself thinking about the chariots of the gods. Which, you know, when, you know, I was maybe 25 and uh, it's 1974 and everywhere you go, everybody is reading the chariots of the gods. What's his name? Something von Donneken, who had, you know, I was going into this whole speech in my mind about this. You know, there was this social revolution in the 60s. It looked like it was going to transform everything. And suddenly uh, Charles Manson appeared, the Altamont Festival appeared, the whole thing failed, Nixon was president, it was a disaster, the hippies scattered or went into the countryside to grow kale. And, um, And then suddenly came this idea, wait a second, the whole of human history is being directed by these benevolent Uh, outer space gods who are in the chariots of the gods and they're like writing their their little uh, inscriptions on every civilization through history. We don't have to worry. It's all in the hands of the much more advanced people than us. My first book is entitled Anamorphosis Eisenhower. Oh. And I and I'll tell you, it is in no small measure out of out of reading Chariots of Fire and seeing on the Pampa. Do you know that uh, with the, uh, the uh, figures of animals on the Pampa in Peru? Oh, desert in the high Andean desert. Because this is one of the big things is that right. about Chariots that's of a, the Gods. That's an anamorphosis. Anamorphic- <laughs> anamorphic process where everything looks a certain way from one perspective and if you change perspective it becomes something completely different and unique so these ancient civilizations according to Eric von Donneken I remember his first name are making these structures amazingly complex structures you know 3,000 years ago they only make sense from outer space. You can only see them if you look down from thousands of feet above. How could that be? These people didn't have space travel. So obviously it's proof of UFOs. And then there's little like hieroglyphs of people in space rockets and things. <laughs> I've, seen some, I've seen some of those, right? The, the My, Those Mayan petrol. Yeah. Yeah. I guess they're Mayan or other. They tended to be South American, as I recalled, these places. I mean, now nobody much talks about it. Anyway, I don't see it on the Internet. It's not my algorithm on 
uh, YouTube doesn't seem to like it if it does exist now. But I feel like it's somehow drifted away from the conversation nowadays. So this book was called Chariots of the Gods? Chariots of the Gods. You never heard of it? I, I've never heard of it until this moment. I'm, I'm very interested. It makes sense that it emerged in the 1970s. Wasn't there a lot of interest in extraterrestrials then? I guess, uh, what was that movie called? Close Encounters of the Third Kind? Maybe that came out. E.T.? E.T. came out in the early 80s. Um, the, Heaven's Gate, the Heaven's Gate extraterrestrial cult was founded was in the 19, 1970s. It started in the 70s? started in the 70s. Marshall hmm. Applewhite and Bonnie Nettle. Otherwise, yeah, there was something about the 70s. Also, the 70s was cultic. You know, <laughs> like people were in cults. Like me and my wife were both in cults in the 70s, for example. Jones, you know, what, what cult were you in? Well, I'm really in the same like, cult. I'm still in the same cult, the cult. Ananda Marga Society. Right. I guess maybe it is a cult. Maybe it isn't a cult. They used to like deprogrammers used to like grab people in Ananda Marga and like kidnap them and teach them to be Christians again, you know, the way deprogrammers do. So maybe it's a cult. I don't know. I mean, my wife, I don't want to tell you about her cult because it's her problem, not mine. Curious. I know it's curious. Figuring on with our with the chariot, gentlemen. Yeah. Which, you know we want to stay you know stay on the road. One can thing I, I wanted to to point I, out is the yeah. use of oh is the use of uh, chariot by Mar Marcel Duchamp. Oh. Yeah, and it actually is a is a figure in his bride undressed by her bachelors even. Huh. You know, also called the Great Glass, Large Glass in the Philadelphia Museum. And as I recall, one of the figures in the lower half of the glass is this, is a figure of a of a of a kind of sled, or actually it's a kind of tractor, and it is uh, called either the um, sled. Or is called the chariot, hmm. the glider. That's what he called it. Duchamp called it either glider or chariot. And it's got this thing at the bottom that's a sort of a loop, as I recall. And it very much resembles a, a tank. Oh. Which is a which the chariot is a form of a tank. Yeah. In from a martial standpoint, it functions like a tank does. You know, it's just an evolution of projectile and so on and so forth. And they were also armored, these these uh, chariots. Hmm. But this glider and uh, this this thing called the chariot represents this male engine, hmm. which is connected to the chocolate grinder. There's a chocolate grinder in this aspect of the male condition including this sort of artful collection of sort of what almost look like human figures embedded in this glass, mm. is this sense of repetition, of mm. mechanicalness, mm -hmm. of production, this circularity, and this kind of drivenness, mm. which seems very much caught up with this idea of the male psyche that mm -hmm. you brought up, Sparrow. 
it's yeah. very much like a hieroglyphic of the male condition of assumptions about male roles and so on and so forth. It's very touching, you know, hmm. Duchamp's glass. It also includes the these projectiles that come out of this shooting thing of the male figure hmm. were actually made with the toy gun and then drilled out so that the glass itself has an inside and an outside, which people kind of forget. It hmm. breathes, but it breathes through these little holes, these little points of um, inspiration, of breathing in. Hmm. Hmm. But those hmm. projectiles are like the tank, like shooting off. And remembering that the large glass was started right after the, uh, during the First World War, actually. And, oh. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, it makes me think about the wheel, you know, because obviously the chariot is a lot about the wheel and possibly is one of the early applications of the wheel. And the wheel, this idea of repetition and of sort of, of a chocolate grinder of, all in a way, all mechanical, particularly motors, are kind of these rotating wheel-like structures. I mean, I guess what I feel myself trying to sort of back into is some acceptance of my own male energy. Let's even just say, in my case, that I'm, let's say, perfectly balanced between male and feminine qualities if one can even speak of male qualities, but I, it seems like talking about chariots, we find ourselves talking about them. So maybe I need to accept that there's some part of me that is on a chariot, moving forward, has a goal, you know, is going somewhere, is shooting people in the face with my bow and arrow. You know, it's not, uh, and hopefully I can use that as the Bhagavad Gita, perhaps, Plato is suggesting, you know, kind of uh, take that intention and use it for some divine purpose. But it, there's still that kind of obsessiveness and goal. I mean, here we are. We're doing a podcast. We're not doing nothing. See, the thing I just want to emphasize, I want to say two things. One is the chariots are really a drag. It's huh. kind of a drag. I just want to overall emphasize that. But then also I would say that the chariot actually is an indispensable attribute of our psyche of our mm. of our composition what you know if you if you have an aim if you have a goal yeah then you need a chariot you know then you need some vehicle you know you need you know blah <laughs> but I, <laughs> but I, I would really emphasize, yeah, the chariot is a very, it's, you know, we do need to be uh, balanced and on a, on a path and, um, you know, cleaving to our, to our nature. And also I wanted to say, because I, I said to my wife, well, we're discussing chariots. And I said to her, do you know anything about chariots? And she said, well, you know, she's been studying women's suffrage, the women's suffrage movement. And she said, well, there was the uh, 1915 suffrage parade in New York City. I think it was 1915. It was roughly around then. Um, so that's five years before suffrage passed nationally. So in this parade was a chariot 
for every state. So the states, some individual states passed women's suffrage before the whole country did. So for each of those seven or eight states, there was a golden chariot driven by a woman in white. This is like going down Fifth Avenue in New York City. So here's the feminized chariot. You know, chariots are not exclusively male. You know, there are feminine. I I don't know if the Amazons, you know, the semi-mythical Amazon warriors use chariots, but certainly one could imagine they did. Super good point. Yeah. I would also point out that the that the uh, tarot card, the chariot, its astrological equivalent is Cancer, oh, that's oh. My, which is ruled by the Moon. Huh. What'd I'm you a, say? I'm a Cancer. Ooh. Oh, I, I have a uh, I have a planet in Cancer. I have a it's a water planet. I get oh yeah, I have Cancer rising. <laughs> That's why I look like a crab. Pisces ascendant. You have Pisces ascendant? Mm -hmm. Mm. Well, have either of you two ever been on a chariot? That's what I want to know. Yeah, that's what I found myself thinking about. And and for some reason, the answer that came to me over and over, every time I would think about this, would be like, as a kid, going to the Bronx Zoo, which it used to be, you could ride on a camel. They had like camel rides for kids. And I'd be like, I don't know, an eight-year-old kid riding on a camel around some little track in the Bronx Zoo. And it was a very exalted kind of regal sensation, a kind of kingly sensation. You know, it's slow. It's not fast like a chariot, though I suppose there are slow chariots. But it was, you know, it's high up. You can see a long distance. It's archaic. You're on a camel, which most people don't use for transportation anymore. I don't know. It just it's the one. And it it seemed like a really, you know, magical moment of my childhood. (laughs) Was it an African or an Indian camel? Which is what's the difference? One has two humps. One has one hump. Right. I can't remember. I must be one hump. Probably African is a more common. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I think now it's completely, I mean, it's considered barbaric to let kids ride on camels in uh, zoos. But this is one thing about, nice thing about growing up when I did before <laughs> anybody had any uh, compassion for animals. <laughs> Sam, have you read? Have you ever ridden on a chariot as I haven't. I mean, I would I would postulate that I actually uh, own a chariot. You know, I have Your a car. sports car. Yeah. Oh I have, yeah, sports car. I was thinking I is two twenty five i. You have one that that uh, what do you call that thing where it like a convertible? Yeah. Yeah. Very nice. But, yeah, because yeah. a convertible is even closer to a chariot because you're exposed to the air. Yeah. Yeah. One has the feeling of being a bit like a centaur. <laughs> Yeah. I was thinking how Archie says to Veronica, you know, he's got this famous jalopy falling apart car and he drives up to her mansion. He opens the door and he says, your chariot awaits. You know, this was like a a very common joke in maybe the 50s that, you know, this messed up car was calling it a chariot was considered sort of humorous. Ironic. 
Yeah, it's just interesting how, you know, the chariot kind of died out in 500 BC as a really, you know, serious uh, weapon of war, and yet it maintains this kind of historical memory in our culture, distant, but, you know, present. I believe what they call in the business an archetype. Yeah, but also a, like a real true historical memory. It's like a physical object, too. I mean, uh -huh. I mean, what I was thinking about was video games, this idea, I'm on a moving surface, I'm, I'm moving, but I'm shooting. I'm moving, I'm shooting, and I have to hit the target. This, to me, is what's going on with a chariot. And this is, I think, I'm not sure, the kind of the, the motif of all video games, of most video games both moving and shooting and having to be accurate with your shot. Except that in the actual experience of being in a chariot, and this uh, is what I wanted to ask, is that did you find any literature about wearing uh, pads on the hips or <laughs> anything like that? Because you, as you pointed out, there would probably in in the chariot and particularly in a when you're moving quickly a lot of jostling you know so you'd be hitting up against each other's um, tushes a lot <laughs> they yeah. must have worked something out hence the uh, masculinity piece it might have been kind of homoerotic in certain cases yeah. the charioteer and the chariot driver charioteer and the archer might have had certain tender emotions. That's what I think. I think it was a very intimate space. <laughs> and war, even now. Erotic. Probably the closest men ever get in terms of bonding. Maybe, uh, what do you call those things? Uh, when you when you go to those like Native American, we, uh, those really hot... Sweat lodges. Sweat, sweat lodges, yeah. Sweat lodges and war. Those are the two <laughs> opportunities for men to feel intimate well i think uh sailing ships um oh yeah and yeah and submariners oh my god <laughs> yeah i think so here's, submariners here's, all hating each other here's a here's a trivia question that i'm going to direct to um sparrow but sam feel free to answer if you um, have an answer what bob dylan song features oh, wow. the image of a chariot Wow, that uh, is such a good question. Uh, I, I knew it's probably there was like one. one of those late uh, songs from like 2004 or something. Um, it. No, it's a song um, from 1965. Oh my! Oh yeah, that's right. When the ship comes in. Oh, is there a chariot in that song? Um, no, maybe not. I. It's uh, Bob Dylan's 115th Dream. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> off of bringing it all back home. What's the line? The line is, um, I ran right outside and I hopped inside a cab. I went out the other door. The Englishman said fab as he saw me leap a hot dog stand and a chariot that stood parked across from a building advertising brotherhood. I ran right through the front door like a hobo sailor does, but it was just a funeral parlor, and the man asked me who I was. Oh, yeah. 
I never understood that he was saying chariot. He sort of mispronounces the word. Yeah. It sounds more like chariot. So I think chariot. that's that's my excuse for not knowing that line. I don't know much about Bob Dylan's 115th Dream. I know that it was one of his early um, surrealistic cut-up collage poems. Yeah. In, in some ways, um, the uh, first draft, uh, at least in, in terms of method of uh, Desolation Row. Oh, really? You think so? In some ways, yeah. In terms of the, the juxtapos- juxtaposition of all of those random images, kind of a collage feel. To me, it reminds me of those other dream poems, like the one where he's uh, he's dreaming it's the end of the world. Right, and... Bob's dream. Yeah. Is that what it's called, Bob Dylan's dream? So. Yeah, Bob Dylan's dream. Right, um, was written before Bob Dylan's 115th dream. He's on a train. He's dreaming of the apocalypse. Yeah, the one where he the... says he's talking to his therapist, and his yeah, therapist his, talk... his therapist yeah. falls a look falls asleep listening to his dream and then the therapist walks up no it's talking world war three blues isn't it and it's like yeah, that's talking three blues yes with the therapist. And then, the, then the therapist says hey i've been having the same dream you just had i've been having the same old dream and then bob dylan says uh you can be in my dream if i can be in yours <laughs> i said that how did we talk about chariot without talking about um Swing Low, The Sweet Chariot. Oh, yeah, I was going to look up that song. Yeah, it might be about uh, escaping uh, slavery. You know, it might be, yeah, like an Underground Railroad song, I think, but I'm not sure. That's a song that's definitely remained in the the cultural ether. It's out there. I know the melody and the lyrics somehow. Do you know some of the lyrics? I'm trying to remember them, you know. I think it goes, I looked over Jordan, and what did I see? Coming for to carry me home. A band of angels coming after me. Coming for to carry me home. Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time and remember to stay tuned and strange.